I'm going to say this with full understanding. I was wrestling with, should we say it now? Should we do it at the end? Um, but I'm going to say this with full understanding that you may be distracted for the rest of the sermon. And that's fine. I'm, I'm praying that God would lock us in. But I don't feel like I can move on without actually saying this. And so really for the last year and a half, two years, we've been praying um, that God would open a door for us to um, move to a different part of town. And so we've been burdened. Uh, when we first got down here, we were burdened. We said, man, as a people, we need to be rooted somewhere that we can multiply effectively. When we looked at what God was doing here um, within our church and what was necessary outside of our church, what the text is going to bring out, we were like, we are the people that we're actually waiting for. That's going to make more sense coming. And so what we said is, how can we be rooted? Where can we lock in, have headquarters, if you will, to have the most possible impact for the kingdom in Miami and beyond? What we've experienced, honestly, over the last year and a half is, is a really a growth barrier where we haven't grown the way that we could or should. And there's some reasons behind that. Some of that is because we haven't fully unleashed the leadership that's in our church. Now, that's partly because of we don't do a whole lot of activities. Partly of that is because some of us are still wounded and recovering from some of the pain that we've experienced within the church. But let me go ahead and say this, not necessarily our church, although I know we have hurt you. And so some of us are just wounded and we're healing and that's okay. But that's some of the growth barriers that we've experienced because we haven't fully unleashed the leadership potential, the capacity that exists within these walls in this room right now. The other growth barrier is we haven't necessarily been rooted in any community. And so, yeah, we, we, we have city groups scattered, and that's always going to be what we do. That's part of our strategy is life on life, everyday life together, beyond the Sunday, et cetera, et cetera. But we haven't had home base. Where is this? Is this Miami Gardens? It depends on who's sending us the bill. If it's the light bill, it's Opelaka. If it's a violation of a code, it's Miami Gardens. Is this I've, Where are we? And so because we haven't been in a particular community or area, we've been ambiguous to the city, if you will. What community feels us when we don't do what God has called us to do? What community feels us when we don't walk out our identity as a people from all people passionate for God? Yes, we have a larger pull culturally. People tune in from all across because of something that God is doing. We can't make that up. Yes, there's a pull county-wise. We are Dade County unashamedly. People say South Florida so they could get the vibe of Miami without the problems. And I get that. Am I lying? Okay. So we are Dade County unashamedly. However, though we have this cultural reality and dynamic that we're engaging, and we've had this county specific dynamic that we're engaging, we've lacked this community dynamic where we could be all in and labor and say, what happens 30 years after we're gone? Is there going to be a place that is impacted because we were there? And for really the last four and a half months, God has been moving some doors and we're just like, okay, God, we're just going to wait and see what you want to do. We brought this up to our members um, right before we went on sabbatical, but uh, Saturday, yesterday, uh, it became formalized where uh, a church that we are going to honor, um, you're going to start to see more of them over the, last, uh, over the next few weeks, 
because uh, they want to actually join with us, but we're going to honor them, a church that has a property, a building, um, and some other spaces in the heart of the city has gifted us their property. That, that, that's clap worthy. That is praiseworthy. They've said, man, we see what God is doing with you guys, and, and we, we want the next iteration of our story to be championed by you guys. That's, that's you. That's all of y'all sitting here. And so over the next few months, we're going to be unpacking the implications of that as a people, what that looks like in terms of us multiplying. Obviously, we have a resident who's here right now that we're going to be sending out to another part of the city. There's some of y'all who are in Broward. We want to, you guys to start to see yourselves as the core of a new church in the future until that future comes, still part of this church. But somebody has gifted us a home in the city where we could be rooted for the next 30 years and beyond. That's a big deal. And I wanted to just say that to say God is more faithful than we could imagine. And we don't need more strength. We need the spirit to breathe on us. We don't need more ingenuity and creativity and all these false notions of innovation. We need something that's old, faithful, and true. The Holy Spirit fulfilling his promises to be a comforter and to be that person who fills us with courage and goes before us to prepare a people for his name. That's what we need. And this prayer in Psalm 67 really captures that. That's why last week we said that this was really a two-part series, because we were going to announce it last week, but I was like, man, I'm going to announce it until I have this little envelope that has all of the signatures. Amen. Come on, somebody. And so I didn't want to announce it last week, but you know what I'm saying? But so we announced it this week, but we said part one was this, God, stir us, stir us to know you. That that's really the first part of Psalm 67, where he is asking that the face of God would be directed towards him, that he would experience him, that, that he would know him and then go out to make us known. And the second part is not just Stir us to know you, but send us to make you known. I'm talking mission today. And I know some of us are going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay as well. Because some of us in this room are aware of our laziness spiritually. And I will say again, we are the ones they are waiting for. And our spiritual laziness has only led to more spiritual lostness within our communities. It has to stop for us. Okay? So, all right, cool. I just had to get that out. All right, tone back. Now I'm back. I'm back in. All right, amen. So, Psalm 67, we're talking mission. Let me um, frame this a little bit, then we're just going to dive into the text and unpack some of the dynamics. It's very fascinating. But when we think mission, really we have to see it in light of the mission of God. So the mission of the church is part of the mission of God or what is known as the Missio Dei. What is God doing in human history, beyond human history, from eternity past to eternity future? What has God been doing? And what you see is that the mission of God in a statement is the salvation of people and the renewal of all things through relationship with Jesus. That is the mission of God as articulated by the scriptures. It is the salvation of people. So people move from death to life and is the renewal of all things through relationship with Jesus. That is the mission of God. And what you see is that the arc of history 
It's actually things are getting better. Yes, there's brokenness that exists, but things are getting better because the mission of God where God is marching all time is renewal. Salvation of people and renewal of all things. Let me prove it through the scriptures. Genesis 1. In Genesis, in the beginning, God created. And what you started to see is after God created, it was beautiful. It was glorious. Let there be. It was. It was good. And then you get to this section where, where part of his creation, humans, Adam and Eve, they saw all that was good for God, yet they turned away from it. They left him. They fell. They betrayed the one who made them, the one they were made for. And their betrayal, what is called sin, which is to disbelieve who God is, which leads to disobedience with what God says, and we, we go our own way, their betrayal, their sin stained the rest of creation and thus stained us. And so what you have seen systematically, progressively, since their sin is brokenness all around us. I don't have to argue that. We know that our world isn't perfect. We feel like something's wrong. But what we see is that God sees this and then he doesn't just let it stay the way it is, but he says, I am on a mission to save people and renew all things. Genesis 1 to 1, the Bible from cover to cover proves this. Genesis 1 1, it says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis 1, 5, the darkness he called night. Revelation 21, 25, there will be no night there. Genesis 1, 16, God made two great lights, the sun and the moon. Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need for the sun and the moon because the glory of God gives it light. Genesis 2, 17, on the day that you eat, you will surely die. Revelation 21, 4, there will be no more death. Genesis 3, 1, Satan appears as a deceiver of mankind. Satan comes in and spiritual warfare is acting on attractive ideas that are contrary to truth. So he comes in, did God really say? And starts to deceive them that lead to their destruction. But what you get in Revelation 20.10 is Satan disappears forever. He's gone. Genesis 3, 6 through 7, defilement enters in. So when they sin, you see this canvas that was glorious, now broken, now defiled, now stained. Revelation 21, 27, we have a new city that is defilement proof. Genesis 3, 8 through 10, the walk of God with man was interrupted. God would come down and hang with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, just chilling. You want to name the animals together? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. What do you want to drink? Man, you know, is there fermented great? What is, let's do it. And he's just, just walking with him in the cool of the day. But it was interrupted. Revelation 21.3, walk of God with man is resumed. Genesis 3.13, you see the initial triumph of the serpent. Revelation 20.10 and 22.3, you see the ultimate triumph of the lamb. That's Jesus. Genesis 3.16 through 17, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in childbirth. And all my moms say, Amen. All right. And so Revelation 21, 4, there will be no more death or sorrow or pain, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All of us say amen. amen. That is the future. Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground for your sake. 
Revelation 22.3, there shall be no more curse. Genesis 3.19, Adam lost dominion. Revelation 22.5, dominion is restored in Christ. Genesis 3.19, the first paradise was closed. You can't come in here. You can't come in and experience the fullness that the garden had to offer. Revelation 21, 25, the, the paradise is opened forever. Genesis 3, 24, the tree of life was shut down. Revelation 22, 14, the tree of life was made accessible. Genesis 3, 24, they were driven from God's presence. Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face. This is the arc of history. This is where God is taking all things. No exceptions. Nobody could thwart him. Nobody could oppose where he's going. It will happen. And if you are part of the people who have believed that there was this sin that came in way back when, but it wasn't just way back when, it's in me. I disbelieve God regularly and therefore I disobey regularly and God has to do something with my disbelief and my disobedience, but instead of doing something to me, he does something to Jesus, the cross, where Christ dies on our behalf in our place. But he raises from the dead to bring with him new life and this promise of renewal. If you are part of the people who actually believe that, then you aren't just spectators of history. You are active participants of the future. Not forcing it to come to be, but fulfilling what God has promised Faithfully so, um, we were gone for about a month and some change on sabbatical, and um, we took our kids out to eat. Now, I usually don't do this because pastor's salary, and when you take a kid out to eat, we got a lot of them, so it's like $60, and was, you know, so I mean, it's just it's what it is. I don't know if that's the best use of $60, but we did it. Ah, we're on vacation. Have fun. Now, here's what I noticed, because I did it multiple times, because I was like, we just go ball out on them. All right, is that in every restaurant we went to, the waitress or waiter um, would bring out to us the menu, the parents, and then they would slip the kids this menu that was really like a coloring page. Any parents know that? Like we, we had this like last week at first watch, they brought it out with this page and then like all these crayons. And essentially, there's usually this mascot or this picture that's already outlined. And what the kids would do, they would just start coloring it in. And depending on which kid it was, it lasted anywhere from two minutes to 30. Because Noah would just, I'm like, man, I feel like you got to like color in the lines. Pretend like you're my son, you know what I mean? And so, but the, uh, like Joel would just be like real meticulous with it because that's just the way she's wired. But essentially, they were just coloring in the picture that was already laid before them. Do you see where I'm going? That is what we do as believers. The future is painted in pen. And we shade it in in the here and now, coloring the future so that people could see and be amazed at the mission of God to save people and renew all things through Jesus. That is the work that is laid before us. It is precious and it often goes undone 
and I want to, through the text, just bring out some, I thought I had a towel. I knew I was going to be, I don't know what happened to it. It's that day. But just bring out some of the dynamics that I think help us to overcome what's happening in our hearts, some of those obstacles, and then really step into the identity that God has laid before all people for all time as the church, but specifically the brook, as God is now calling us into this new season of life and ministry as a church. Let me read it. We won't be here long. Um, Psalm 67 it reads like this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all the nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations. Oh, look at the Lord. And you guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I feel like real black church right now. now let me go. We're very diverse, but like, I mean, I came out the jacket. I got this. I don't know what's happening. You know, but anyway, so like, <laughs> folding my arm. I'm like, this is like, I didn't grow up in the church, but when I went to college, I went to a black church, and it was just different. So yeah, amen. They'd be proud of me. Now, the, the context of this passage we've talked about last week, but let me just bring it back that you have this prayer and this praise and this passion from this psalmist where he is having the ear of God attentive to him, and he is asking for something. He says, God, bless me. And we said blessing isn't bad. We just have to define it appropriately. That it cannot just be stuff, although that is part of blessing, but it's stuff that's connected to Jesus, meaning that blessing essentially is really just relationship with God. And so he's like, yo, yo, God, bless me deep in this relationship. But what was powerful and what was pivotal was he said, don't just bless me for me. Bless me so that I could be a blessing for everyone else. Bless me so that the nations through me would be blessed. Bless us, because it's corporate, so that the nations through us would be blessed. And so what he gets at now and what we're spending the rest of our time today talking about is that louder part, what's the blessing the nations are receiving? He said that it was salvation, that the power of who God is to save, mission of God, would be known and experienced. That's what he says. He says, blessed so that they could have relationship. But what's fascinating to me and what I think is pivotal for our cultural moment is the dynamics of, of verse four. Look at this. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The, the occasion for joy matters. What is causing them to sing, shout, dance, and delight. Praise, if you will. I know that's sort of Christian needs, but really it shouldn't be. Praise is a reflex we all have. It's a reflex to something that we delight in. Good food, you're like, man, something happened. Right? This is wedding season still. And so you see, we sung like a bride waiting for your groom. That was even so come. But we know that it's really just a response or a portrait of what happens when you walk down the aisle and you're like, mm, did a wedding two months ago. And, it was, and, and I saw, man, Daryl, he's not here right now because his wife is sick. But man, he was crying. He was like, 
but he prays and then he cries. It's a reflex of delight, of a desire. It, praise is a reflex, but it's also an indicator of worship, of something that is worthy, that has grabbed your attention. And what, what is causing them to, to jump for joy, what is grabbing their attention is the latter part of verse 4. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. What is pulling from them this experience of great delight that is now verbalized and thank you, God, is equity and guidance from the hand of God. The word there is justice. What's causing them to jump from joy is a God who is just. Now, amen, I'm fully aware of what that may produce in some people in this room right now. Some of us are like, that's why I'm at this church right now, because that's y'all, I talk about that stuff. Some of y'all's like, ooh, y'all at that church. First of all, let me go ahead and say this. It is very impossible to put the brook in a box. Because even in this room, there are people who are politically conservative and politically liberal, socially conservative and socially, and you know what's cool? We're still family. So you're, not gonna, you're just not going to put us in a box. There's a glorious both and that is experienced here at the church. But regardless of whether we land on one side politically or socially, what I am extremely proud of and I love about the people within this body is that we land on the same page biblically that God has called us to be just. And if you would allow me for the next few moments to articulate why this matters and what this looks like, why this matters. This is the topic of conversation for our day. It's tied to a larger conversation I think we're not really talking about, which is what does it really mean to be human? But this is the topic of conversation for our day. Furthermore, the history of the church in America has some stains on it. Where there has been systematic abdication of responsibility and systematic silence in the face of injustice. And so in a very real sense, some of the oomph and the gusto that the, the church is supposed to possess has been lost because people look at us and we're like, oh, you're those people who burn crosses. Or you're those people who hate X. And so what has happened is people have hijacked the narrative of who the church is because she stayed silent in the face of injustice when she should be speaking loudly, clearly, and serving with actions that speak even clearer and louder. So it matters for our day. We can't not talk about it. And when a text that we walk through brings it up, we're going to talk about it. 
very obviously. That's one. That's why it matters. Two, when you search just the scripture, you're just a cursory read of the scriptures, and what you see is this collision of justice and righteousness flowing from the character of God, which means this, that the, the way we understand what justice is, is it from Fox News or CNN or somewhere in between? Because they're not honest with us. Can I just say that if they're just not? Okay, amen. But we go not to media to have a definition or a standard or grid or framework for what is justice, but we go to the Bible, to God, because it's who he is. And man, the scriptures are not silent. Isaiah 11, three through four says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus, this righteous branch that God is raising up that will provide shade for people and fruit for people to taste and enjoy and see God is good. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He's not going to be fooled by externals. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Zechariah 7, 9 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Zechariah 8.16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace, shalom, wholeness, that things that are broken are being broken brought back together, mended and healed, made whole. Leviticus 24, 22. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Because you treat people the same. That's that, Everybody. In fact, that's what equity means. It means level ground or plain. It's flat land. Same rule for the sojourner. That means they're not from where you're from. They don't look like you look. And the native, they're part of your land. And then the most famous, often reduced to bumper stickers and T-shirts and coffee mugs, but it's still famous. It's beautiful. Micah 6.8, what some have articulated as the summary of the entire law what Jesus will take in the Sermon on the Mount and beyond and start to unpack. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That God is not silent regarding this dynamic of justice. But what we see is his standard for justice is far beyond any standard a culture could set. Notice, notice the equity here. Notice how, how people are being treated the same. That's, a, that's action. It's like I, I am looking beyond 
what I see externally, and I'm looking deep into the reality that you're made in the image of God, and I'm treating you accordingly. No one else can lay a claim to that because we don't define what it means to be human the same. God does. Notice that. When you, when, you, when you survey the scriptures and you talk about this, this idea of, of justice, there's this word that frequently arises. It arises in these texts. It's a word in Hebrew, mishpah, and, 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 and essentially it can be summarized as to, to do um, for someone or to give someone what they are due in terms of punishment. If, they've been, if they wrong, you gotta, you gotta make it right. Protection, you started to see that there. Like care for the, care for the poor, care and concern. That, that is mishpah. That you're giving someone what they're, what, they're, what they're due in terms of punishment, protection, care, and concern. That you're directed towards them to make things right. That's a big deal. And when you even look at this Micah 6, 8, when he just starts to summarize, he's like, man, you know what? You know what God requires of you? It's not really that complex. He says that you would do justice and that you would love mercy. And they, they may seem opposite, but they really work in tandem. That mercy becomes the posture of the heart to actually go out and do something which means that mercy is more than an emotion that you feel is a truth that you express someone matters and now i move to action which means that justice if i could just bring it back home to us again justice is mercy at work to make right what's wrong to mend what's been broken to point to a future that we read that is glorious. And when the people of God walk out their holy identity as a just people, which means that there's something in their heart, compassion, they feel something when other people hurt. I know some of us, when we see people who are homeless on the side of the road, we're like, I don't want to make eye contact. Because then I feel some level of responsibility. So maybe if I don't see you, I don't have to deal with you. And what's happening is in your heart, you're trying not to allow mercy to room to breathe. But when the people of God step into their holy identity as people who are just, which means they feel, they weep, they're concerned. And then they're moved to action. What the scriptures say is that the nations are like, yes, because they're waiting for it. How many people have waited for us only for us to be silent? Only for us to be selfish? Let the peoples praise you. Nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. You are fair, and you guide the nations upon earth. Where are you guiding them towards this good and glorious end? And lest we forget, part of the justice of God is not just experienced in the here and now. It is experienced in the life to come, where God deals justly with every single person who has said that he was a liar. You are not true God. And they have said that he is a liar with their actions. I do not want you. And so they've abandoned him. And God is saying, right now, 
you think my perceived silence is licensed to just do what you want, but just because justice may be delayed does not mean it will be denied. And one day, I will deal justly with every single human who has said no to me, who has looked at the cross and said, you hung for nothing. I will deal with that. That's part of what this text means, that he judges with equity, both the social dynamics and the spiritual ones in the here and now and the world to come. And for that, he is praised. I want to close with what do we do in light of that? C.S. Lewis has a quote that I feel um, is appropriate for this passage because the nations are waiting for something. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, and that's men, not necessarily like as in the gender, but as in humanity. So you can read that men and women feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo, or a mirage. I like this. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of life, to press on to that country and to help others do the same. The response of joy when the nations experience justice, a God who judges with equity and guides them appropriately with a caring hand, with a powerful, strong hand, that response of joy reflects a truth that the heart longs for life God's way that every one of us have all of these deep longings in us and we are longing for life as God has attended. C.S. Lewis has captured that, that all of these things that we think are just commonplace desires, they're really rumors, if you will, of an even more glorious world. You long for food. Think about how powerful this is. We just even think about just the nature of food, that when, when you're hungry, 
There's something in you that's just groaning. You're like, mmm. And then you see those commercials, man, you're, you're not the same when you're hungry. Go get a Snickers, right? And there's, there's something in you that's groaning, and what you are instinctively saying is, I need something outside of me to satisfy what's happening inside of me. Look at how clever God is. A rumor that there's something more to you and you know it deep inside of you, but you cannot look inside of yourself to satisfy yourself. This is why you search the scriptures and there's this constant imagery of water and food with salvation. Where God is saying, yeah, yeah, just like your body needs food and water to survive, your soul needs me. And when you look around right now, the longings that are deep inside of us can't be shut up anymore. There is this massive wave of discontentment everywhere. And what we've done in the midst of our discontentment is we've just sought more pleasure. We've tried to customize our life. Everything is a click away. But it doesn't work. You have every single one of us in this room has had the that's it moment. That's it. Right? Because God has booby-trapped your satisfaction so that you will never run into fullness apart from him. So even when it's a good thing that's leading you, you'll get to, ah, that's it. Man, I watched Avengers Endgame. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, but I got to the end. I was like, ah, that's it. <sighs> it's not the way I thought that was going to end. I love you 3,000 though, right? For those who've seen it, right? And so even if it's a good leading, but when it's bad leading, it's just like, that's it. What have I done? But God has booby-trapped us so that we would bump into broken experiences only to find him behind it and beneath it saying, look to me. But how, how will people who don't believe that Come to believe that if the people who have experienced that bump into brokenness only to say I bumped into it, now I need to look beneath it or behind it and I find Jesus. How would the people who've never done that experience that if the people who have experienced it are silent? That's why Romans 10 is powerful. He says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We've been sent. If you know Jesus, part of your identity is ambassador of the goodness and grace of God. That you are an ambassador of another world. That are, that's just, there's rumors of this world right now and these longings, but you're an ambassador of the future. You are an heir of eternity. And God says, I am sending my heirs to poke and press at the pressure points in people's lives, the aches, the discontentment, the longings, only to lead them towards better water, better streams, real life. And they lead them because they have a life that's worth following. Because they're people who are just. 
So they get down and they wash feet. They don't look away so that they don't make eye contact. They look and they see and they hurt and they weep and they feel insecure. They feel inadequate, but they know a God who is powerful. So they move and they act. We're the ones they're waiting for. And if you're ready, if you're ready, let me give you four places in close that I think that people are waiting and we should be going. The first is in our relationships. There are relationships around you right now where people are just, I mean, they're just tired. They're tired. They're just tired. You're tired. You're tired. You're ready to just call it quits. You're tired. You know what's beautiful? Is tired people attract tired people. I'm dead serious. But what's broken about that is then they start having these tired pity parties. But if you're tired, but you're connected to the source who never sleeps or slumbers and gives rest, then you could attract those tired people, but you don't have to have a pity party. You could point them somewhere. So there's, I mean, just the relationships around you, you don't even have to do anything. You just have to think, who's around me who is tired? Who's around me who is overly busy? Relationships around me. Work. Where God has placed you in your job is the battleground for his glory. And as frustrating as your job may be, you have the beautiful, glorious opportunity to be a person who points to a glorious future. You work differently because you're not working to gain something. You're working from a place of what you already have in Christ. You work differently. You serve a little bit differently. You don't, you don't engage in gossip the same way. Right, so amen. Work. <laughs> same. People, are wait, people are waiting in our relationships. People are waiting to work. People are waiting in our neighborhood. Like I said earlier, we're going to a neighborhood and we're about to put our teeth in the ground and we're just going to get to work. But where you guys are right now, there's people around you who are waiting in your neighborhood, your neighbors. Do you know their names? Do you know, do you know their names? Or are they just people who occupy the same space, your neighborhood, and in the nations? We're going. We took a break, and we didn't go internationally in an organized way. That's not happening again. We're going. As some of us feel called to people who aren't here, and that's a good thing. Change the world through yours. This is your world, your relationships, your work, your neighborhood, and the nations. That's, that's the world that you live in. And you can literally change the entire globe just by being intentional with your own world. It's Matthew 28. Go make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them. As you're going, your world. And so, as we did last week, the prayer that we have, a pastoral prayer that we hope galvanizes us to be who God has called us to be, to rest where God has called us to rest, to be unhurried, yet striving with vigor. Father, God help us to understand how loaded that word is is 
how life-giving it can be, how overused it seems because it's often detached from your greatness and glory. Yet the word and its meaning is simply majestic. Father, would we catch an ever-expanding vision of life in your hands?